Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. So Alfonso Pecatello, Tiello, is it is that the correct pronunciation? Yes, not that bad. Very well done. Thank you. Maybe give the audience a bit of a background on, on who you are, how you came into finance and, and what specifically you're interested in working on at the moment. Yeah, so the reason why I actually was interested in finance starts early, at, I think probably at 15 years old is one of the earliest memories I have because my mother is a treasurer for a small bank in Italy and we were having lunch breaks actually at home from school and she was bringing this laptop on, on the on the table because you know the market is always open and there were these graphs on it with the BTP future which is basically the future of uh, the 10-year benchmark Italian government bond that was for her the, the product of reference uh, I'm Italian well I guess by my accent you've got that already <laughs> So I, I was asking her, I mean, what, what is that? Well, I mean, what are we looking at here? So she was explaining to me what that is and how it works. And I got really fascinated by it. And then I started learning a bit by myself, chose a path in economics at university, general macroeconomics, and then went to do quantitative finance, option pricing, and that kind of stuff. Uh, but the passion actually to follow markets and to try to connect the dots was there since yeah, since I was basically 15, inspired a little bit by my mother's work, effectively, which I, I just wanted to understand a bit more. And I ended up now leading a department that manages a uh, fixed income portfolio, mostly also other asset classes are in there. As we speak, I have to put on a disclaimer. I'm here representing myself. I speak on behalf of myself and not on behalf of my employer. So all, all, all the whole opinions you will hear in here and views are only my own. Mm-hmm. That, that obviously opens it up for, for more fun and games. Um, Italy is a, a really fascinating place economically. It's, it's faced a huge amount of changes um, sort of pre and, and post Euro uh, and the introduction. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on how time changed uh, through that period. Yeah, it has been an interesting transition. So Italy uh, had, I would say, the typical emerging market model. Uh, between the 70s and the 90s. And the model was effectively to devalue your currency, which back then was the lira, to make your export more competitive. Italy was, and still is, pretty decent at producing stuff that gets exported in other places in Europe, but also elsewhere in the world. And in order to make ourselves more attractive, we used to devalue the lira. And also we used to extend credit and make credit flow through the economy via budget deficits, basically. So the Italian government was always effectively on a deficit between the 70s and the 90s, with some periods where this was not the case, but more generally, it was in deficit. And we also used to devalue our currency to make ourselves more competitive. So this obviously created a large temporary wealth effect in Italy. So between the 70s and the 90s, you had a booming economy. You had interest rates at 10 to 12 percent. You had inflation also running at 10%. So this is this reminds you of a booming middle-class uh, emerging markets, effectively. And people uh, have nostalgia of these times because when we entered the euro, 
Uh, this process is obviously not possible anymore because you are not free by yourself to choose to devalue your currency. Uh, your currency is now the euro, is the currency of a monetary block. There is one agent that does monetary policy, which is the European Central Bank. And there are all the local governments that do the fiscal policy uh, lever. But that is constrained by the Maastricht Treaty rules. And the Maastricht Treaty rules say that to simplify, you cannot have a budget deficit which is higher than 3% of GDP. But more importantly, it says that year by year, you should adjust your structural deficit position to make it look better and to balance your budget. And that means that you cannot expand credit on a structural basis through the economy via making deficits. And you cannot devalue your currency whenever you want, because now your currency is the euro, is the European Central Bank is in charge of representing 27 nations, 19 nations that have the euro, and not only Italy. So obviously this transition was very painful. The deleveraging and the devaluation started happening via wages rather than currency. So people saw the purchasing power going down effectively, and some angst was, yeah, you know, developing amongst the population. You had, I think, somewhere in 20. 17, 2018, uh, Italy was amongst the countries that had the worst response to a European barometer poll that asked people, how happy are you about the euro and about, uh, you know, belonging to the eurozone and Italy together with Greece and other countries of, let's say, the Eastern European bloc, where they are the least, uh, the least happy, Italians were the least happy to, uh, to belong to Europe. It's funny because there was a, a period where it seemed that that Italy was looking to 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 leave um, the euro, and it, it, that seemed to be where it was going, and then suddenly just disappeared. It, it feels like there's always a bit of anxiety within different countries, and then suddenly uh, some some secret men, I guess, come out from the EU bureaucracy and, and tone down the the rhetoric, and uh, things seem to slow down. What does it feel like today in, in Italy? So feels much better today. I think if you run the same poll, situation has improved. And there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, in 2018, we got basically a new government formed in Italy, which was the combination of the most Eurosceptic parties, basically, you can get out there. And those parties uh, coalesced together. Nobody thought it was possible, but they actually found a common platform which was effectively basically trying to uh, shuffle a bit the cards within Europe because they were trying to do non-conventional things, I should say, and some of it were yeah, very confrontational towards Europe. So what happened is that the bond market started pricing the probability of Italy to exit the Eurozone much higher than it ever did over the last five to six years. There is one technical spread I look at, which is the spread between two different CDS contracts. And one CDS protects you against basically the re-denominating your debt back into another currency. The other CDS doesn't do that, only protects you against the default of the country. So the spread is, is between these uh, two CDSs is always used as a proxy to you know, check out how much pe uh, people are, are willing to pay up to hedge themselves against a, a redenomination of the debt into another currency by choosing one CDS rather than the other. This, this spread between these two CDS contracts actually ballooned. So people were prepared actually to pay up for a redenomination risk. Now, I, I should add that the Italian constitution 
it's very well written and puts a lot of checks and balances. So this process requires plenty of hurdles to be surpassed. Some of them are very, very difficult. It also requires a referendum to be put towards Italians that effectively will have to vote whether to leave uh, the, the, the Eurozone or not. And, you know, the choice of leaving the status quo is always pretty difficult, I have to say. But in the end, we never got even close to that. And the reason why we didn't is because it was very clear that the bond market was signaling that mayhem would have happened. A large wealth destruction is part of this redenomination process by definition. And, you know, the tones with Europe were very confrontational, but at some point they started getting better because from a European perspective, you don't want one of the largest countries to actually leave the block. It would signal that you're not cohesive, you're not behind the project. And I would argue that Europe would dismantle very quickly if that were to happen. Uh, Europe is also a geopolitical project. Europe stands there to make sure that the single countries within the bloc can compete against the United States or China in a better way than they could if they act on a single basis, you know, on a single country basis. So this stance prevailed, actually. Uh, the confrontational uh, stance and tone went down. And now we move to a moment where that coalition actually fell. A new government was formed, was more European friendly. And now that new government uh, sort of also fell. Well, in Italy, we have a tradition of, you know, changing government every year and a half after the Second World War. And now we have, uh, as a prime minister, Mario Draghi. And Mario Draghi represents, um, well, all that the cohesion in Europe stands for. He was the president of the European Central Bank. He's the guy known to have saved the euro, basically. Uh, so you can see that, you know, the situation is changing and also Europe is doing active steps to make sure that Italy and other countries are not that left behind. The European Recovery Fund is one example of that, where for the first time, Europe actually stepped up and decided to issue bonds on a joint basis. Although it's a temporary program for now, for the, for the last, for the next seven years, it's including the European budget. But it's a first step towards this sort of fiscal joint issuance or joint effort, let's say, that before was basically never there. I'm curious to get a feel for around Europe is, is obviously so many different nations together. Uh, they're all competing for capital. They're all competing for labor. How, you know, how can they compete you know, where there's still a lot of control from a ability to you know, have this standard euro as, as a default currency? Fiscal policy can move, but it can't move too far. You can't go too far out in terms of deficits and so forth. H- how are things functioning, I guess, for Europe more broadly when there's still a lot of constraints on them? First of all, Alex, I should say not all European countries walked into the Europe with the, in Europe with the same situation. So the underlying situation when countries entered Europe was very different across countries. Despite efforts were made to adjust and sort of make sure we were more or less on the same path as we created Europe, there were large differences. So this, this inheritance, let's say, has waited, for example, on countries like Italy or Greece or Spain. And uh, as I said before, once you can't devalue your currency, you will tend to devalue your wages in order to make sure you're competitive. So Germany is always used as a reference for that. Um, And if you want to compete with, with, well, basically the largest economy on the block and also uh, a relatively export-oriented economy on the block, you'll have to make sure there is some internal competitiveness gain 
that you are running. So you can do that, I guess, in two different ways. You can you can increase your productivity. And for that, you need structural reforms. So you need to improve structurally the output you're able to generate with yeah, basically the, the factors that are there to uh, explain long-term trend growth in your country. And that is uh, basically labor supply. So you know, birth rate and demographics and the productivity of capital and this labor supply. And, you know, structural reforms have always been advocated in Europe, Alex, but it's very difficult actually to get them done. It's very difficult because those are generally painful, as in they they change the status quo. And, you know, look at France. That's another example. The pension reform in France basically never gets done in a proper way. Every time every president tries to put on the agenda, something like that, you hear on some newspapers, riots in Paris, uh, gilets jaunes, which are the yellow, uh, you know, the guys the guys dressed in yellow go there and destroy the city. And, the yellow vests. You know, all that. Yeah, the yellow vests, correct. So some countries have tried. One, uh, I think, a relatively virtuous example of that is Spain, that between 2012 and 2016 put on some different, uh, decent labor market reform that improved productivity, improved the flexibility in the labor market. And they're now reaping the fruits. I mean, Spain was able actually to be one of the fastest growing countries in real GDP basis in Europe between 2017 and 2020, before the, the pandemic struck. So that is one way to increase your competitive, internal competitiveness against, let's say, Germany. But it is a very framed environment where it's very easy for a nostalgian politicians to point back at the moment where you could devalue your currency and you could print deficits as long as you wanted because that's it's very easy to do it's a model everybody can implement and the other model that europe is trying to propose is much more painful it's interesting where you've also got the situation where there's just one tap in terms of the central bank uh, for europe is the only tap that can adjust the liquidity that comes in uh, and, and that lack of flexibility, I think, would also be very difficult for many countries to try and ad- address that. And there's such different levels in terms of structural reform, different countries that are at, different inflation, different labor market reforms. It's, it's incredibly difficult. Uh, but they yes, seem to have it kept is. it together today. Yeah, so the act has been put together a bit better nowadays, and you can see the shift. I remember the governing council when uh, Draghi was uh, the president, and we were facing the European debt crisis in 2012. And Draghi was advocating already that, you know, the euro is irrevocable. We have to defend that. If investors don't trust us to stand behind it and provide liquidity to governments, which is effectively the benchmark for any financial product being priced out there. I mean, loans are priced, of course, over swaps, but also looking at government bond yields. And so uh, corporate bonds are priced on government bond yields with the spread, of course. So, you know, it it basically influences a whole bunch of metrics for monetary policy transmission. And now Draghi was very vocal on the need of preserve the euro. But you had very hawkish members of the governing council, especially Northern Europeans, that didn't want to meddle in this monetary financing sort of game or a proxy for monetary financing where a government can issue bonds and then the central bank goes and effectively creates reserves out of thin air to buy these bonds. And, you know, then the banks or the pension funds or the insurance companies who had bought these bonds before from the government found themselves now with these reserves instead. 
And this incentivizes also them to put these reserves at work again. So it's, it's a virtuous cycle that you basically create that it, it compresses the spread environment in the risk-free product. And then by, again, extension, other credit products will be better behaved. I mean, that is the model of QE effectively. Directly faced a lot of opposition. Now you have fast forward to today, in one of the first press conferences of Lagarde, I think it was end of 19 or beginning of 2020, I'm not sure about the dates, but she said, okay, look, guys, we are not here to defend spreads. That's what she said. We are not here to contain spreads. That's what she said. The market didn't really take that well. So it shows how European investors, but also foreign investors in Euro are very, very wary of how the central bank actually behaves. What is the signal that the central bank is there to give? And then Lagarde backtracked and, you know, said, okay, that that was not what I meant, et cetera, et cetera. And now fast forward to now where they're doing this pandemic emergency purchase program, which is large and which is very, very flexible. So they can literally intervene and make sure that credit spreads are contained in the risk-free product, which is what they want. So you can see some, some positive developments there, both from a monetary perspective. So standing firmly behind this compression of credit spreads and hence a better monetary policy transmission mechanism, but also on the fiscal side where the European Recovery Fund has been launched for the first time. What do you then, I guess, make of the fact that you've now got a number of countries that are into to negative real rates um, and actually negative nominal rates in, in many cases as well? You know, how does this then play out, right? You, you've got a situation where you, you said there's some pension problems in, in France. Many many countries have got similar sort of pension liabilities. It's very difficult for them to be able to 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 make returns to to fund these liabilities. But you've also got yeah. this default rate that is, is negative or, or very close to it. So negative real interest rates are extremely important uh, to understand the whole financial world we live in. So what's happening now is that we have borrowed huge amounts of future growth and future consumption to fight every single crisis that came across between the 80s and today. So the moment that you stopped pegging money supply to a scarce asset like gold, which was the case until 1971, you have moved to a model where your money supply is completely elastic. You can just expand or reduce your credit flow to the real economy, more or less at your will. The government can do that straight away by printing money and making deficits. So they simply spend money they don't have and they, they can't cover with taxes, but they rather create new money by basically printing deficits. They can do that relatively quickly as long as there is political will behind. And commercial banks can also start lending money more aggressively, which is basically a new form of creating new credit through the economy. Now, what has happened is that we have always done that to fight crisis and not only because that's a very simple way of borrowing future growth and future consumption, overlaying cyclical growth on the structural trends you have. And you have this wealth effect, this, this illusion wealth effect where today you feel wealthier, but you know the next generation is going to have a problem. Now, how do you make sure that you can sustain these huge debt burdens you have created in the public sector and the private sector is to make sure that you can refinance them at very cheap rates. So that means nominal rates go down and uh, you create some form of inflation between 1% and 2%. And inflation actually erodes the real value of liabilities of debt. So what you're having today with negative real interest rates is governments in Europe for a 10-year government bond, they pay 0.12% of interest rate, nominal interest rate to refinance. 
core inflation in the eurozone has been about 1% for the last seven years. So if it continues to be 1%, you're having negative real interest rate to the tune of negative 1%, more or less. This basically reduces the real burden of debt on governments. But what it does on the other side, Alex, as you pointed out, it punishes savers. That's what it does. So anybody that is an investor, a saver, pension fund, a private person, will have money invested in risk-free assets like government bonds that are actually reducing, and I'm laughing because it's incredible, it is reducing their purchasing power on a daily basis. So if you're a private investor, you have money on your bank account. In Europe today, you get 0% if you are lucky. If you have above 100,000, I think soon it's going to be even less, you actually get negative 0.5% a year. You have to sum up inflation to about 1% in Europe on a stable basis. So you effectively are paying a tax between one and one and a half percent, and this tax erodes your purchasing power in real terms every year. This is this is pretty difficult to understand, but it's actually a very powerful mechanism. Now, what what has happened is that you would expect that because this is the case, people would spend more because they understand that their purchasing power is going down today. They'd rather investors spend money more to make sure they get out of this stealth tax, basically. Well, they don't. That's the other counterintuitive thing. But in Europe, as soon as real interest rates on risk-free assets, so let's say a guaranteed bank account or a government bond or whatever, when real interest rates went negative on those products, European investors actually started saving more in order to make sure they have a larger pot of notional money for their retirement. What they did is they started saving more rather than starting investing. So. This is a vicious circle where by lowering real interest rates, you reduce the real burden of governments in terms of debt, but you keep on punishing more and more investors like pension funds or private investors. They cannot achieve their return target unless they take more and more risk, which is what's happening. If you look at an insurance company portfolio of assets in the Eurozone, the percentage of assets they've allocated to say lower rated corporate bonds over the last decade has increased more and more. So they are full of junk bonds, high yield bonds, high yield, better yielding bonds. Let me let me call them like that in Europe. And those are of course more leveraged, more risky. And this tranche of the market gets on gets more and more capital allocated towards them because people feel they don't have an alternative. So it's a system where you encourage risk taking, you encourage leveraging and you really walk on a very thin rope and a little change of monetary policy direction or a little close of the tap of credit flow is enough to generate a non-linear reaction in markets, but rather a convex reaction. And yeah, I wonder really what is the end game for this. I'm curious then in terms of inflation, that, you know, when I think about the, the debt overhang that we see today, we see negative real rates, you, you see huge amounts of monetary, uh, monetary printing taking place. You're also seeing then people saving. You know, where, where do you then sit in terms of the, this, this runaway inflation narrative? I sit on deflationary camp. One of the, I think, few people left, maybe Rosenberg, the American economist, or Jeff Snyder uh, of Alhambra are sitting on the same side. More debt actually is deflationary over the long term, especially if this debt is unproductive, which is exactly what we are doing. We are literally 
borrowing in order to make sure that zombie companies don't go bankrupt. We are kicking the can down the road. We are misallocating capital into the economy. We have negative real interest rates. I mean, capital is basically useless. And the more you keep on doing this, if you, I don't have a chart back here with me, but if you try to regress American debt to GDP against uh, real interest rates, you will actually see that the more American total economy got leveraged, the more real interest rates went down. It's counterintuitive. You would expect that they would, they would go up because you have to get you know, a risk premium in order to own these bonds because there is so much leverage. But actually, it's the other way around. Real interest rates go down. So credit creation to fight a crisis is inflationary short-term, especially if credit creation is, was so large like it was during the pandemic. I mean, America, I bring them as an example. The government printed about 25% of GDP to fight the pandemic. I mean, this is ridiculously huge. This is a, a multiple of the output gap. We normally talk in percentages of the output gap. Here we talk about a multiple of the output gap. Now, clearly, when you print so much money, because this is printing money, when the government does net deficits, this is printing money. It's not the central bank swapping a bond for a bank reserve. That is that has been done as well by the Fed to accommodate the process, but you have you don't miss the forest for the trees. America printed money in large amounts, all right, and and that's what happens. So when this happens on a short-term basis, and you have a lot of newly created money chasing the same basket of goods, and on top of that, you have supply bottlenecks because of you know the pandemic we're in. You're set up for a cocktail of short-term inflation. I mean, it's just there. And, and by the way, we measure inflation comparing year on year. So you're comparing against May last year. Yeah, of course, you will see aggregate demand to the roof because of this, monet, uh, this, this credit creation and that's some supply bottlenecks. So that's what we are experiencing now. And we will probably experience inflation in the US above 3% or around 3% or more for a few quarters to come, not months, quarters to come. So I would expect that between now and the end of the year, American inflation will print easily above 3%. And maybe even first quarter of next year, you're going to have, again, 3% inflation. Now, what happens after that? Because the, the media is very focused on short term. They, they have to have catchy headlines and make sure people click on their links and what have you. But if you are a long-term investor, a private investor like me, just managing my savings in this case, and you look at what happens later. What happens later is that you're now left with an over-leveraged economy, basically. If you look at the long-term structural factors that are behind growth, so productivity and labor supply, labor supply is negative, literally negative. So the, 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 you know, the active part of the labor force shrinks every year and the productivity is also pretty stagnant. So it's very difficult to produce long-term sustainable growth, which is also by definition hardly inflationary. So you're, you know, you're left back to the old structural trends that are also compounded by things that are advancing at an incredible pace, like technology. And, and you know, I, I don't think anybody can make a comparison between today and the industrial age. You know, what I hear is people looking at the 60s and the 70s. You're talking about an era where labor supply was positive and it was just completely different. It was non-scalable projects and parts of the economies that were taking a large percent of GDP. And today, it's the other way around. You have negative labor supply year on year, horrible demographics, and technology, which is highly scalable, that is taking more and more percentage of you know, GDP. 
So it, it's not a comparison that will hold. I think we will be in 2022 and later on back to the structural deflationary forces. It's quite scary when you think about it because of the huge amount of debt load that's there. Then how much, you know, how do you get out of it? You know, the, the ability to grow your way out was was always a, a way that was was looked upon and you know, creating inflation, unfortunately, only temporarily is not going to be able to address that problem either. Yes, you're completely right. I mean, we just kicked the can down the road. And I think the poster child for this uh, to look at is Japan. Japan is basically 10 years ahead of Europe, both from the labor supply dynamics, both from interest rates and, and real interest rates. So Japan basically chose not to go into nominal negative interest rates. They sort of kept their 10-year benchmark around 0%, more or less, maybe slightly negative, but you know that's more or less where, where they went. So to push real interest rates down in order to make sure you can kick the can down the road, you need either nominal interest rates to go down or inflation to continue printing at a positive rate at least. Yeah, now you're you are right depicting a pretty scary picture because once nominal yields have reached some sort of a lower bound and the temporary inflation spike due to this you know, pandemic reaction and supply bottlenecks actually fades away, if I am right, then the real interest rates will be very hard to push lower. They actually will go up for the wrong reasons. They will go up because nominal yields can't go down anymore and inflation expectations are falling. And if you have inflation falling, your real debt burden goes up. So that is that is very scary indeed. I think the model will continue to be to try and keep real interest rates negative. Now you hear about central bank digital currency. That's also very interesting because one of the lower bounds of nominal interest rates is the fact that people expect that if you pay me, if you force me to pay minus one percent on a bank account, I might well withdraw the cash and keeping under the mattress. Okay, so that's what you know. That's a typical argument that is put forward to say there is a lower bound to how much nominal yields can fall. Well, there are some technicalities. It's not that easy. You cannot withdraw all your cash. You have to store it. It has a cost to store it, etc. But it shows you how people are thinking. Now, if you move to central bank digital currencies, basically, it's all digital. You, you, you basically deposit cash directly straight away at the central bank rather than a commercial bank. Uh, the economy becomes effectively cashless, which is already the case, by the way. 97% of our transactions are digital. Cash represents only 3% of the total money in circulation, let me put it like that. The rest is basically digital ledgers between commercial banks. But if you officialize that, then central banks might easily decide that minus 5% is your new rate for keeping your digital euro in a central bank digital currency account. And then you sort of went around this again by even kicking the can down the road a bit further. I wonder, though, if people are going to accept hugely negative nominal interest rates because not so many people understand the real interest rates. Everybody does understand nominal interest rates. If you have nominal interest rates negative, you're getting taxed on a nominal basis. People really do understand that. So I am with you. This is pushing on a string more and more. And I am a, the only thing I can say is that financial markets are truly globalized and overly leveraged, incredibly leveraged. So it takes a smaller and smaller butterfly effect, basically, to, to, to create a tornado of deleveraging process and convex payoffs rather than linear uh, and composed reactions by the market. 
And unfortunately, you end up with investors constantly holding the hand of central banks or the central banks holding the hand of investors to, to take them through these journeys because it's it's constantly having some sort of a pickup in volatility, drawdowns, and no one can deal with a bit of risk anymore. Yes, that's correct. So the, the, the other interesting thing is that the financial market actors, the risk takers, run within an incentive scheme, which is very weird. So people are measured before over the next month or three months. So if you live into this system, even if you're well aware of the long-term trends that are very scary, you are incentivized to be short volatility and to try and get on the train as long as it's running because you can't can't afford not owning equities if your benchmark says own equities because actually you're going to underperform and then in three months your manager will come to you and say what are you doing and you're like i think this stuff is crazily overvalued yes but you know you're you're underperforming 90 percent of your peers I, I cannot have that and you know this system effectively incentivizes you to be short volatility short gamma and just buy every asset that is part of this uh, of this system. And, and, and it's very scary because everybody's on the same boat and the exit door is very narrow. So the moment something happens, everybody wants to head for the same exit door. It's a little bit like being in a party. And, you know, you know at this point, it's not even 2 a.m. anymore, it's 5 a.m. And people, you know, there is somebody handing drugs to people and say, okay, just keep on dancing, man, it's so good. But then there are a couple of guys saying, look, I just want to go home. I mean, this is this is getting too late. But people started getting home at 11, at midnight, at 1 a.m. And they missed large returns because, you know, that, that's what happened. People have been sidelined for years and they've missed on extremely large returns. So people that are dancing on the dance floor are still very happy to do so. But they look at this exit door from the disco or, or the pub, which is very, very narrow. So what happens when the music stops? Somebody just turned down the music and says, well, even for 10 minutes, sorry guys, we'll have to stop dancing. But everybody will realize it's 5 a.m. in the morning. We'll try to head for the same narrow door. You can't do that. There are, there are only a limited number of people that can get out through that door in a composed way. All the others will have to fight to get through that door. It's just a way to say, you know, insurance is very cheap to buy when things are calm. But it's also very difficult to stand behind your call because you look like the clown that actually lost money for years by doing that. But then when the house is on fire, insurance is very, very expensive. And then we have the firefighters coming every time, try to pull the fire down. And I'm not sure how long this model can, can keep on working. It seems to have gone on much longer than I even thought. Um, it, it seems like it just keeps going, particularly you look at any asset prices, whether it's through equities, bonds, even real assets like houses, um, even cars. Now you're just seeing everything running hot. And it, it's, it's concerning because at some stage, somebody gets stuck with it um, and someone's going to end up losing. And unfortunately, one of the other problems that's become really apparent is that Around the world, people are being sucked into financial instruments because the traditional bank accounts don't provide enough returns for them, as you mentioned. So people are being dragged into more and more risk through bonds, through equities, through other complex derivative style products, uh, short volatility style ETFs, for example. They're being dragged through uh, things that they've never touched before, have no understanding of, but it seems like the place to be. And um, you know, maybe... 30, 40 years ago, any financial crisis didn't really matter so much because it wasn't part of the whole economy. Unfortunately, now it seems like the financial economy and the real economy is just becoming intertwined. And so I worry that the, the risk is actually now amplified because these two things are so connected. 
yes, it is. It is amplified and people are taking risks in products they're not confident in, which means they're going to be the first ones dropping the ball when something becomes uncomfortable. And the game of pushing real interest rates lower and lower becomes increasingly difficult uh, at each iteration. Actually, I think the pandemic has probably accelerated this process by several iterations at once because we faced an unprecedented warlike GDP drop event. And therefore, also the monetary policy and the fiscal authority's reaction had to be uh, commensurated to that drop, that drawdown in GDP. So, if you would have had two or three average crises, uh, then probably you know you would have been 20 years forward, more or less at the level we are today. And actually, we had to go through that process one year, in one year rather than in 20 years. Yeah, it's it, the thing is again the instruments that I think can protect you against this in, in the financial markets are not many. So if you think of a convex payoff uh, instrument, options is the first thing that comes to mind. But interestingly, if you're buying options, especially against the telltale risk of really uh, wealth destruction and a financial implosion of this, because basically what you have to do is you have to deleverage, right? It's a very painful process, the wealth destruction process. Now, if you buy options, you'll have to make sure that the other person on the, on the side of it is able actually to service the payoff when the time comes. So that's also something you'll have to keep in mind, some sort of a wrong, wrong way risk, basically. But yes, they provide convex uh, payoffs. Interestingly, options are, in volatility terms, not extremely cheap, especially down the road. If you look at the VIX curve, let's say a few months forward, rather, rather at, the, at the spot VIX, you see that people are paying up for tail risk. And, and, you know, and you wonder, uh, again, if this is the right timing, that's very difficult to do. But yeah, I mean, in, in a deleveraging process in such a globalized and intertwined real economy and financial economy, uh, it is very difficult to identify an instrument that is able to preserve purchasing power through that event. I would argue that dollar cash does very well. And the reason why it's very well is that even through that process, it will remain the global reserve currency of the world throughout that process. Maybe later on it will be replaced, but uh, during that process it will remain the currency of reference. The system is overleveraging dollars as well. Uh, an interesting thing is that the only country able to export dollars outside US is the US. Actually, the euro dollar system also exists where banks and other, you know, Latin American country can print dollar debt. But that is actually the part that gets tricky because in 2019 there was $12 trillion denominated loans or debts that are residing outside the US. When a crisis comes, actually, you know, trade stops and, you know, these countries that do not have, have direct access to dollar liquidity, so they need dollar flows to service their debt. Well, it happens to be the dollar flows stop exactly when they need it the most. So it's a scramble to get your hands on dollars anywhere you can find them or dollar risk-free assets or dollar cash in general. I mean, in 2018, the same happened and the only asset that was performing, you know, positively was dollar cash. In 2018, the Fed tried to tighten monetary policy and brought real rates to positive. Oh my God, positive risk-free real rates. What is that aberration? It's actually used to be normal, but markets can't take it because it means you have to service your debt literally at higher interest rates. And as you become more leveraged, that's not possible. I've got to ask you a final question around gold because it's seen to be one of these hedges that, that can take advantage of this deleveraging of a system, but at the same time, people will have this idea that it will protect them against inflation. In this world where you see there's a deflationary 
sort of approach coming? How do you then think about gold's place in the portfolio? Yeah, so gold is, is an interesting asset because I think it has a place in the portfolio. It has a 10% place in my own savings portfolio for two reasons. So it's first of all a hedge that can provide returns while we go through the convex situation rather than linear one. Why is that? Is because as we described, we walk into that situation by lowering real interest rates first. So we try to kick the can down the road for as long as we can. And in the process of lowering real interest rates, gold actually makes you money. So it's, it's a very strange hedge. But why do I think it's a hedge at the same time for a crash or let's call it a crash, but rather um, a change of our monetary policy mechanism is that if you move from a fiat-based monetary system with elastic money supply, you have to move and the transition period is going to be very painful, but the obvious alternative is something where you peg your money supply to a hard asset. That was until 1971 the case. Now people are advocating Bitcoin standard now instead of gold standard, but you know humans are, I think they refer back to what more or less worked and, and gold has a huge track record of, you know, sort of working on pegging monetary expansion. Central banks already own gold reserves. They do not own Bitcoin reserves. So I would say, yes, there is a case, maybe you can make that Bitcoin might have a place in that, but gold would be, I think, top of people's head as the alternative for pegging money supply to something and making it less elastic. Now, gold is going to be hammered in the wealth destruction process because people accumulated positions in gold because of lower real interest rates. Now, this means that the liquidation process will hit gold as well, Alex, like we've seen in, in March 2020. If you have a sudden event, there is one thing that people want, and it's to get out of leverage and to get their hands on dollar cash. That, that is the only thing. So even treasuries got sold out, gold got sold out. That is just an entray of what would happen if you really would try to transition towards that system and properly deleveraging without the firefighters coming in, just properly deleveraging, uh, let's say, creative destruction process. Gold would get hit as any asset would get hit in that process, I think, barring maybe dollar cash. But long term, I think it would have a place in your portfolio because as you rebuild the system, gold would be, in my opinion, used as one of the references to pack money supply. Well, I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you very much for your time today, Alfonso. Yeah, it, it, it has been my pleasure, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.